I would say the biggest trend right now is probably all the development around large language models and artificial intelligence that is going to allow you to really do queryable Earth uh, given a data set of Earth observation imagery. Don't look at them, ask questions and you should be able to query it with similar search imagery as you may have seen with the synthetic balloon detector example or text, right? And, and we, are real, we are at the cusp of making that happen. Welcome back to the New Space Vision podcast sponsored by LiveView, where we discuss new space technology, finance and innovation with executive founders and more exciting people from the startup and new space ecosystem. I'm Sturm Shivara. And I'm Daniel Seidel. And together we are the founders of the Earth Observation company LiveView and New Space Vision. Today we are super excited to welcome Kirothika Devaraj uh, because she is the VP of Engineering at Planet. Planet, uh, as you may know, is operating the world's biggest Earth observation constellation. And today we're going to uh, look a bit behind the scenes, especially also on the technology side. So uh, welcome Kirothika. Um, and uh, yeah, basically, uh, how are you? And uh, maybe you can introduce yourself to the audience. Thank you, Sven, Daniel, for having me on the podcast. It's really great to be here. Um, so I um, work at Planet Labs, and um, as some of your audience may know, we are a, a satellite and data company. So uh, we are in San Francisco, primarily San Francisco Bay Area, but we have a, a, a an office in Berlin uh, and a few other locations throughout the world. We um, operate a satellite constellation of about 200 satellites that fall in two different classes, uh, doves, which are about five kilograms, um, and they monitor the whole world um, land mass on a daily basis, and Skysats, which uh, have a 50, 60 centimeter resolution that are, that allow us to point zoom to specific locations and uh, and follow up on areas of interest. So that's what Planet Labs does. Uh, we operate the satellites, we get the data down and we serve it to our customers. A bit about me, um, I have been at Planet Labs uh, in various different capacity. Over the last nine years, I joined uh, to build um, radios uh, because we were collecting so much data and we, you know, there were no radios available nine years ago to bring terabytes and terabytes of data down. So I initially led, um, I came into Planet to build, um, my as my CTO asked me at the time, the fastest CubeSat radio. And eventually we went on to build uh, the fastest CubeSat radio that operates today at about um, two gigabits, um, downlink rate at expand. And since then, I've worn multiple hats. Now I lead a team um, of uh, spacecraft designers, that's electrical software, um, guidance and navigation systems to build the platform capabilities of our satellite. So this is power, avionics, communications, uh, and uh, control systems. That's super cool. I just want to say because Sven and I, we uh, sometimes even got a, a Planet Duff for uh, exhibitions or even at the office. So what you just said, uh, like the fact with the CubeSat radio, if you see it, it's so tiny and it's so powerful. So that, that's, a, that's a really incredible achievement. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, as my CEO, Will Marshall says, oh, it's the density, uh, performance per, den you know, per density that matters. So you yeah. have to, you know, if, uh, if you can have a cell phone, uh, have a gigabit Wi-Fi to access, then why not satellites, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that you already mentioned so many things, which I think make this uh, will make this conversation very, very interesting, especially for the people which 
have a, a bit of pre-understanding of, of what satellites really, yeah, how they are built up and what the different components are. You've mentioned one very important thing, which is platform. We love platforms and we think that the planners is a very interesting approach and we hope to dive deeper into that, that topic in a second. So yeah, exactly. You said you, you, you start with Planet um, in the area of communications and, and building, the, building the communications hardware. When was that again? I started uh, um, in 2014. Yeah, 2014. So, and, and I, I don't have the numbers right uh, on top of my head, but I think Planet wasn't too old back then, right? Um, I believe I was employee number 80-something when I started. Um, yeah. And since then, we've moved twice, um, and we are in a nice location um, in in financial district now. Yeah. And now I think uh, yeah, multiple hundred employees, right, at Planet? It's, it's more than 1,000 now. I, I checked it thousand. up on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yeah. We are about 1,200 now. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. So, so more than 10x growth. And obviously, we would also love to dive a little bit deeper into... Uh, what that really means for an engineering organization to scale from a couple of people to to hundreds of people. Um, exactly. What prior to prior to Planet, you've worked uh, in in research. At least is what we've we've been yep. able to find on your LinkedIn. And you've just said you've went through this ex incredible growth on the um, on the startup side. Uh, how else would you say is the experience um, difference from working in a growth startup of that type yep. and your experience in working in research? Yes. Um, so I um, I was um, a radio astronomer uh, before I took off that hat and put on the hat of an engineer again um, when I switched to Planet. But I had spent um, about uh, ten, over 10 years um, doing various different um, astronomy-related projects. My background is in engineering. And even though I was an astronomer, I was um, there are three kinds of astronomers, right? There are the theoretical astronomers, that do all the heavy math lifting. And then there are the observational astronomers that use all these telescopes to look at the sky and, and you know show you pretty pictures. And then there are the people you don't hear of, the black sheep of the astronomy family, which are the instrumentation people that go and build all the instruments that then go to take these cool pictures. I was the black sheep, um, the instrumentation person. So I worked on a bunch of different projects um, uh, I worked, um, and my background was in radio, so I focused on radio astronomy. Uh, I worked um, on NASA mission Juno, supporting a specific instrument that was trying to understand the deep atmosphere um, concentrations of Jupiter. Uh, the mission's called Juno. It's at Jupiter now. It's taking measurements of the, of the, uh, the composition of um, Jupiter. And then I went on to work at a bunch of different places, um, and um, I have worked on instruments that went and got um, deployed at radio astronomy uh, observatories, like the Green Bank Observatory in West Virginia, that are actively used to look at anything from, you know, like planets to the very early universe where the first stars were forming, right? And it's the same instruments that can allow you to look at these swath of uh, functions, but then you change uh, gear. And then you can use the same kind of instrumentation to also send a ton of data. So it's all complementary. The engineering remains the same. And um, so in, in that sense, it was easy for me when I decided to leave academia to switch on the hat, um, to put on a new hat. Uh, what was uh, different, uh, two things were different that um, that I was um, a little, you know, um, it was interesting to find and I had to adapt quickly. Number one, 
I was involved in Mission Juno for 14 years before it launched. And then um, I was, I think, halfway through my employment at Planet Labs by the time Juno went to Jupiter. And even now we are taking measurements, right? This long timeline of projects that you work on in academia, it's not a commercial enterprise to launch something into deep space. So the timeline, super long. And then, uh, you know, I'd be involved in an instrument and I'd have done something, uh, except that you can't touch your own hardware, right? Like there are specific classes of instrumentation that, you know, and specific people have authorization to touch. So it's, it's so that was a little different, right? Like I could go and change hardware, like just before shipment and it is yeah. fine at Plant Labs. So, uh, so that's number one. Number two was um, the amount of um, rigor that goes into the last 5%, right? Like it's um, science is about precision. So if you want uh, some precise measurements of any phenomenon of our universe, you need to build your instruments to the best of their abilities. If you just go by cards, it's not enough. So you're really pushing the art of material science, of, um, of engineering, uh, or physics to try to get to the last, you know, fraction of uh, precision. Whereas um, in a startup, it is about speed. So oftentimes we joke that, oh, you do 80% and then instead of trying to solve the 20%, which will take twice as long, you just do the next iteration because the next, next iteration is going to be 2x, 3x better. So it just feels like, um, you know, you can jump leaps and bounds because you don't care about that last 20%. And and we are not really um, in reinventing physics at Planet Labs, right? Although we are standing on these shoulders of giants of the consumer electronics industry, the automotive industry, who have spent billions and billions of dollars into developing technology that then we borrow and then use, use special techniques to qualify them uh, and then send them to space. Yeah. So, that, that, you know, those two differences, the long timeline and um, not uh, worrying about the last 5% um, was was a change. I can imagine. And uh, so how did Planet actually, um, uh, like, did they approach you or, or how did you join them? Uh, because, uh, I mean, it sounded like a big shift for you. Yes, the CTO at the time, uh, Chris Boschhausen, I believe, gave a talk at Stanford and one of the recruiters was there. And then I, I, um, I, she somehow ended up contacting me and I wasn't uh, planning to leave academia, but uh, she was very persistent and she wanted to just come, you know, she wanted me to just come and meet somebody and then meet somebody else and meet somebody else. And then, and then I got convinced. Nice. Yeah. And now uh, you are nearly a decade at Planet. So it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great career you had then. Um, at, like your current role is the VP of engineering. Can you describe your current role a bit? So what, what are you uh, working on? What's yeah. your responsibilities? Yeah, so uh, I, I would say I um, yeah, I have two main you know kind of responsibilities. One is I manage the team um, that builds the avionics power um, communications and guidance and navigation systems, the design of those systems um, and to ensure that they meet our requirements. My other hat is more on strategic long-term projects. This is to really place the platform, as I see the spacecraft platform, to be able to have multi-mission capabilities or um, the fastest radio or whatever else, right? So figuring out the long-term roadmap that aligns with with 
meeting the requirements, but also provides the cutting edge um, for our customers in terms of capabilities. Yeah. But so, so you are working really on the cool stuff, which hopefully, uh, from your point of view, exactly sets Planet apart from other players out there, right? What you said, the platform approach and others. But it's really, really interesting. So you've mentioned that um, exactly timeline and, and the use of commercial off-the-shelf parts um, is, is really what takes apart pla work at Planet and pla uh, work in academia. And when we started at Live View and with Newspace Vision as such, that was roughly 2016 or so. At least in Germany, the people were still saying, oh, what does Newspace mean? Um, and, and, and what is Newspace? And so would you say also that the just quick iteration cycles and the use of these custom um, commercial off-the-shelf parts are the definition of new space for you, or do you and Planet have a, have a different definition of what you're doing there? Um, so I I feel um, if you ask um, one of the, you know the early employees at Planet, I wouldn't say that we are new space because new space can have can happen over and over again. Uh, we do really um, um, use this term called agile aerospace which I would say is what we really honed on developing because Agile is a philosophy that that has existed for a long time and software industry uses that process. Um, and that relies on rapid uh, prototyping and this ability to quickly iterate. And every time you iterate, you're improving features and releasing new features to test out things, doesn't work, roll back the feature, right? So uh, we took all those principles and figured out a way that allowed us to continuously to, uh, improve our subsystem performance. And that means, say you have an S, you know, you have sto onboard storage so SSDs and you're collecting, I don't know, uh, some set of imagery. You, you want to add a new sensor, but you know you're going to be limited by how much data you can store on board. You want to change your, your solid state drive. We are not custom building it. You go to a commercial vendor, Samsung, Micron, whoever else, go buy it, do a bunch of tests to make sure it'll work in space. And then say you have a launch with 20 doves, the small CubeSats, and then you're able to decide, oh, I'm going to take 10%, 15% of this launch and then call these satellite tech demos. So you put the experimental configuration of your new, new upgraded system in that 10%, 20%, and then you, you get to space as quickly as possible. So this ability to use space as a test bed and de-risking your subsystem performance in space has given, um, I think that's what I would say is agile aerospace. That's, that is new space in the sense that you can't do it all on the ground because then you have this huge waterfall, you know, 10 year long, yeah. super reliable system and processes you need to build up. So in the end, it really comes down and maybe also for the listeners, exactly that you launch more often, quicker with smaller, units so that a satellite doesn't cost 200 million and everything has to work, but maybe cost a couple of hundred thousand so you can test with it, right? I think that's really the big difference. Yeah, and over time, you build up this portfolio of technologies that have been to space and sometimes something's bulletproof. You don't need to up upgrade it at all. For example, our um, radio, the TTC radio on the DOVs, they've been on 500 plus satellites. We open source the project. It's called OpenLST. And that's that radio is bulletproof, right? So sometimes you don't need to change the capability because it meets your mission and you have a subsystem that you know you can rely on and you launch it on all your satellites. 
Yeah, I mean, that's uh, super cool. And there are already a lot of um, different uh, sensor generations in, in the in the DUFs yes. and in, in the yeah. past uh, decade. Like, from your perspective, like, can you walk us through, like, the biggest changes you have seen enabled through this Agile Aerospace approach? Um, specifically at Planet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, um, I think early on, we, um, um, again, as you, you had to, like, it's not just, oh, I have a new camera. I have a new telescope, I'm going to go do it a little better. But then once you upgrade your, uh, you have a fourth spectral one, you're generating a lot more data. You need to build up your bus to be able to provide more power if needed, get the, all the data down, right? So you, um, so there's a downstream impact to making changes to the payload. And we try to um, always understand whether a change is evolutionary, meaning, oh, I just need to change this battery pack or it is all-encompassing and there needs to be a, a step up in, in our capability. And those missions are handled in a different fashion. This 10% upgrade won't happen if you want to change out your sensor and that means your radio needs to change and a bunch of other needs, uh, changes need to happen, right? So uh, I would say uh, you can, you know, like you need to figure out how to make this evolutionary upgrade on a continuous trajectory because that's what's upgrading all your platform capabilities. But anytime your payload changes, that is a step up. So we treat those two as two dif different paths to maturity. Cool. You've mentioned platform in the beginning, and, and we already spoke about a lot of the different things which you've done with the hundreds of satellites which you've launched. Um, speaking about platform, platform for me always comes with the ability to be compatible with one another um, so that you can integrate with uh, maybe the previous constellations or iterations of the same sensor um, and you've now already launched a lot of different sensors in space and we as satellite data analytics company we have looked at different different data sets coming from these different sensor types what is the motivation of yours to upgrade the sensor um, because obviously the, the the upsides for example better resolution always comes down with downsides for for example in terms of consistency of time series analytics right the entire um, the buyers of your, your data need to go through a change process themselves to use your new data sets. So how do you internally make the decision for, hey, we're going to upgrade the sensor and might get an additional edge versus, hey, then we can't really implement, can reuse this data in terms of time series analytics? So um, to answer this question, uh, I will take you back to the time where um, Back in the day, you you know you picked a sensor and then you build up all these algorithms that are um, quantitatively weighing and deciding, putting a threshold and saying, oh, this is um, I have this kind of soil moisture because I have this very specific spectral band that's picking up something, or I have this amount of clouds because I have a weight threshold for this particular spectral band and I see something. Right? When you say backward compatibility and analytics in particular. I will argue that yes, you need to figure out how to get uh, your, um, that you get a lot of pixels uh, from space. We get 25, 30 terabytes a day from space and we built petabytes of archives and um, and then we have petabytes of archive going back to the rapid eye days. We fuse our data with Landsat, Sentinel, publicly available data set. We, we fuse it all and then at the end of it all, you want to have your analytics algorithm uh, be able to process data that goes back all the way to the 60s and 70s. And sometimes what that means is that, yes, the model you've trained may not work as you upgrade your sensor, but it's just a matter of figuring out, okay, now I have a new data set, I need to train it. And when you train it with the right set of data, 
even if there's a little overlap, you're, you're going to figure out how to make sense of, you know, the time series. Um, so there is the thing about, okay, continuously training your models and ensuring as you, um, as you release new sensors with new spectral bands, because say um, a customer is super interested in looking at coastal regions and they really want coastal, you know, coastal water blue band or, or um, um, near IR, right? So, so it's a very fine balance between a product team that's out there going and doing the market research and then the internal teams that looks at, oh, I, I'm, I'm going to get a lot more information. So yes, there's this whole satellite design cycle that needs to change. But then the software team's brought in because now the processing algorithms need to change. New pipeline, data pipeline needs to be built yep. up and new calibration methods have to be thought through. And then on downstream of that is the analytics you run because unless you do this entire processing, which is super compute intensive, you don't get to the analytics ready data set, right? Yep. So so it's a, it's a full range of people, pretty much the company that's involved when we make these sensor choices. And it's customer driven. Yeah. Okay. And uh, before we talk about new constellations, uh, you just mentioned uh, RapidEye. And uh, one one interesting uh, fact for our listeners about Planet is that they not only built uh, the famous uh, CubeSat, the Planet Duff um, for the Planet Scope data, they also uh, acquired the SkySets and the RapidEye constellation. So the SkySet uh, submeter, um, like the size of a washing machine, you could say, right? And the rapid eye was actually a, a German constellation with uh, uh, like around about five meter um, resolution. And we would be curious, um, like how you perceived uh, how how the acquisition of these constellations changed the way you designed the new platforms or how you how you worked on 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 the um, on the satellites. Um, for the most part, for my team, the acquisition of rapid eye and um, SkySats didn't change a lot because it was already designed satellites in the RapidEye case, it was already all up in space. SkySats, we still had a few yet to be launched when we acquired them. Uh, but there were a lot of integration things that needed to happen. Operations-wise, we have to figure out how to um, absorb this Berlin team and figure out how to operate the RapidEye satellites as well as SkySat satellites. Um, and then downstream, as I told you, this pipeline, the, the whole processing chain, um, that had to be completely thought through. But more importantly, um, um, the the thing that Rapid allowed us to do was uh, Planet launched our first um, set of 88 satellites in 2017. That was what allowed us to do this daily coverage, right? From 2017, we had this daily landmass of the whole world. But then the acquisition of Rapid Eye meant that we could suddenly go back to uh, an archive that was 10 years prior to 2017. So we just, you know, by figuring out how to merge the data sets, planets, spectral bands with, um, you know, with rapid eyes, and we, they were uh, more or less, um, you know, spectral band wise, we were very com compatible. Uh, you, we were able to provide our customers an archive that went back and time series analysis that went back 10 years prior to when planet actually launched the constellation. And then we also had a, um, a we, we um, acquired all the black, you know, rapid eye customers. Boom! When Rapid Eye Constellation eventually got decommissioned, we were able to successfully transition over to Planet Scope um, um, bands, and that was a successful transition too. And with SkySats, it was different because it's not, um, it wasn't the, you know, as you said, it's a one meter tasking. 
So it was a different mission profile compared to this monitoring. And that had to be, you know, so that was in new customer base and we are acquiring more customers for SkySats as we speak. Yeah. Yeah, and um, it's it's really interesting for anyone who's also been to the Bay Area and in that ecosystem. The, the I think the the um, Skyset was acquired by Planet, and uh, Rapid Eye in Berlin has also been acquired in Planet. And now in the old facility of the Skyset team, there's a new um, space company called Muon Space building a new kind of satellite constellation. So it's really cool to see the the new space and um, startup ecosystem of the Bay Area really in in like full life here. But you've mentioned SkySet, you mentioned RapidEye, um, and you've mentioned at the very beginning that you are really responsible and working on building new satellite constellations for Planet out there. Um, Daniel at a conference said that Planet said uh, that they had learned the best from both worlds through SkySets and the Planet Dolphs uh, for the new constellation, which is called Pelican. Yeah, and uh, Kurothik, I can tell you, like we are extremely hyped and excited for the new constellation. Um, and there's also something uh, special about it because you you actually have one platform where you have the um, high-resolution res 30 centimeter um, uh, multispectral sensor, but you also have a high-pass spectral uh, um, um, sensor the, for the tenagers. And uh, like, how does it work that you have these these two different sensors in one platform? Like, is it really the same platform? So it's um, it's not both payloads on the exact same platform at once. So it is a plug and play system where what we have tried to do is to have a platform that's flexible enough that can accommodate different kinds of electrical interfaces and mechanical interfaces. And there's some design that goes into slightly modifying your platform on the mechanical side in particular to enable a different payload. But from the beginning of this project, we knew there were two payloads that were eventually going to be launched. And um, we ensured that we are we are compatible with um, with these two types of payloads, a hyperspectral, or 400 spectral bands, 30 meter resolution, so very different kinds of power data needs com compared to a 30 centimeter, super high resolution, um, high agility, because um, SkySats need to task and you know do a lot of off-data pointing. Um, so we, we tried to make all our subsystems compatible to, to meet two different mission profiles. Yeah, that's uh, super, super exciting. And um, I mean, now launching these two new sensors uh, based on, on the same platform uh, comes with a lot of opportunities. Yeah, but there are obviously, as I already mentioned, also other players on the block, newer players, right? With 1,200 people, you're getting also a bigger organization and that typically means a slower organization. So how do you think will Planet keep up its engineering advantage over newer companies like Neon Space or others which really want to grab a piece of Planet's pie? Um, I would say by providing um, customers what they want, right? Like that's our uh, metric to success. It is not about building the best satellite. Yes, space is cool. I work in that sector and it's amazing to do what I do and get paid for it. But, um, but it, you know, the mark of a company's success is whether your customers are happy or are they looking elsewhere? because they are not happy with their data set. So, uh, you know, that's uh, we, over the last couple of years, we've really built out our product org. We have a, a um, we are trying to go for a, a sale, sales machine that can talk to the customers, understand what they want. And a lot of times, um, you know, some customers don't want pixels. They want higher order analytics. And over the last couple of years, you would have seen some change in how we are operating. We have a new um, team uh, that builds 
you know, what we call planetary variables. Those are anal analytics products, um, things like soil moisture content, fog forest carbon, uh, landmass, um, you know, coverage, and things of that nature that are derived analytics products that are a higher uh, level above the pixel product we deliver. So we are hearing the customer uh, needs and trying to meet those needs. And in terms of who else out there, it's it's a healthy sign when there are a lot of people in your you know in your field, right? So it, it's a it's a fine balance between understanding who else is out there. And a lot of times, we want, for example, it's a very complementary data set to what we are generating. So um, sometimes it's not really the piece of the same pie, but it's really about expanding the pie that's available. Yeah. But maybe one question is, where would you say, like, just from an engineering point of view, where would you say yeah. is the cutoff, uh, cutoff between a platform can only stretch that far, right? Any platform yeah. can only stretch that far. And what, what at least uh, I think is that there's, uh, there's a significant difference between radar sensors, radar satellites, and optical satellites to a certain extent versus just from the outside perspective, an optical satellite, a classical optical satellite and a hyperspectral satellites are more alike. Uh, where do you, where do you, do you think that there's such a cutoff where you say, okay, it doesn't make sense to now build this in the house, but let another company do this? Um, um, yeah, do you think that there's something like such a cutoff date? Um, I would say um, physically, satellites can do, look very different. Yeah. But capabilities-wise, they could be very similar. It's about how you, you know, put your subsystems and pack them inside a satellite, right? Like you take out the telescope and suddenly you can build a flat, you know, a flat satellite like you have the Starlink satellites because you don't have this huge need for a large volume in the middle of your spacecraft body. So, um, yes, payload d determines the shape of your satellite, but all, all the platform capabilities I was telling you about, it is just about fitting it into a different form factor. So. Once you build up the platform capability, and again, you know, payload development, it's, it has its own timeline, lots of technology risk. But the point behind having this multi-mission adaptable platform is to have this ability to be nimble about interfacing with different kinds of payloads. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, I mean, Planet is at the cutting edge of space technology. As an engineering manager in this organization at the cutting edge of its industry, where do you, at what kind of organizations and industries outside of the um, space ecosystem are you looking to get inspired um, in terms of like new ways of, of, of running an engineering organization? Um, I would say um, I mean, from consumer electronics through robotics, automotive sectors, there's a lot of parallel to be drawn. We typically don't look as much at um, space aerospace companies because a lot of us have come through and you know matured through that um, you know that um, um, technology um, part of the um, you know um, Bay Area but um, complementary industries as I've told you before you know like oh um, we want to take billions and trillions of dollars of investment that has that has gone into building eventually you know building self-driving cars I saw the other day, uh, Waymo um, cars without drivers dropping people off in the Bay Area. So, you know, like you have self-driving cars driving around. And so billions of dollars of investments have gone in. And so we do look a lot, not just for technology, but also processes that have enabled uh, successful companies in and around us. Nice. Yeah. So um, let, let's let's talk a bit about the ecosystem. There's um, 
uh, I mean, you are in, in the center of, of the uh, rapidly evolving uh, industry. Um, and from a technical perspective, what are the biggest trends you see currently, which basically unlock the earth observation industry? Uh, I would say the biggest trend right now is probably all the uh, development around large language models and artificial intelligence that is going to allow you to really um, do queryable earth, which is our, uh, you know, um, Bill Marshall's vision too. Uh, given a data set of earth observation um, imagery, don't look at them, ask questions, and you should be able to query it with similar search imagery, as you may have seen with the synthetic balloon uh, detector example, or text, yep. right? And, and we, are real, we are at the cusp of making that happen. I'm, I'm surprised and not surprised at the t same time, because we are also seeing this as a very, very big trend. Um, but hearing it from you, uh, like confirms also that, especially also in the Bay Area, you, 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 you guys, you, you really see it even um, like building the hardware side of things too. Um, but maybe um, one hardware aspect of the industry which you see, like is it um, uh, potentially um, like like the, the ground stations or inter-satellite communication or or anything like that? Um, yeah, I would say that you know as you are interfacing more and more systems in space together. Uh, it is not too far in the future that you would have a mesh network of all satellites right now. Starlinks can talk to each other, which is fantastic. But if there is a, you know, like any satellite that launches can network with any other satellite, you have enough compute in space, then you're essentially creating a worldwide web in space, right? Like this yeah. is again the early, the ninth, you know, 80s and um, 70s where all computers got connected and they're like, oh, you can run unique applications. So the future you know, for spacecraft and satellite constellations um, is probably in the next decade or two when all this becomes reality. And then you start seeing new applications where you, you know, you don't have ground stations maybe. Um, and, you know, you do a bunch of compute on board. You're not really bringing all the data down because you just can't because you're collecting so much data. So you're very selective. You're running analytics on board. There's, just, there's a lot to be done over the next couple of decades. Yeah. And I think for, for, for these reasons which you've just mentioned and exactly the one which you've mentioned just before in terms of queryable earth, I think this is why this industry is so exciting. And uh, we unfortunately already have to come to an end Thank of Thank you today's. so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. just wanted to ask you, uh, who do you think should we have on the podcast next time? Um, Johnny Dyer from Muon, because you mentioned Muon. He's, uh, he's a great guy. He uh, was uh, one of the early employees at um, at Skybox, and he's the CEO of Muon. So he, he's um, he's a great guy. So Awesome. So I hope, uh, Karuthika, we can meet in person when Sven and I are in the Bear area. I like to follow up on a lot of topics. Very exciting. Um, I, I learned a lot uh, today. Uh, so thanks for your time. Um, so make uh, sure to, to uh, follow her uh, on, on LinkedIn. And um, uh, yeah, don't forget to tune in uh, next time and also follow uh, New Space Vision on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, wherever you want uh, for updates, announcements and more about the new space industry. So thanks a lot again. Thank you so much. All right, uh, lift off and the clock is started. Lift off. We have a liftoff.